Cambry Cruz is up at a cabin in the Catskills, and she just received all of her dad's personal belongings in the mail. So my dad's entire life is all in this one box. She pulls out his books, his towel, his prison-issued clothes. And they all look pretty worn. Here's a roll of toilet paper with a disposable razor. File folders with legal papers, recipes, his letters. He wrote me this in a letter. It's from Sonia Tates. What children take from us, they give. We become people who feel more deeply, question more deeply, hurt more deeply and love more deeply. My dad wrote that to me and he said that that was us. That was you and me. In a separate package, Cambry also receives his ashes. Her dad died in July in a Texas prison. It's taken years for Cambry to reconcile with her dad, but they finally had. They were even planning to go on a road trip when he was paroled. Now she's wondering whether she should go anyway with his ashes, riding shotgun. Cambry is 49. She grew up in rural Texas with deaf parents. They met at a school for the deaf. Her mom had partial hearing. Her dad was completely deaf. Mom worked factory jobs, while dad worked construction. Money was tight at times. But Cambry says she and her brother had all they needed living a feral life. Running through the woods and killing snakes and swinging from trees and swimming in the creek and fishing and stuff. Cambry looks like her parents. She shares her dad's dark eyes and mom's blonde hair. Her mom's name was Christy. Her dad was Ted, but everyone called him Sego, short for Can I Go Out? Sego built a tin shed for the family while they saved up enough to lease a trailer. When their trailer was repossessed, they moved back into the shed. We're talking no electricity, no indoor plumbing, a concrete slab floor, one bunk bed to sleep in, mom and dad on bottom, brother and sister up top. In Texas heat, living in a tin shed is not not comfortable, to say the least. But being the daughter of deaf parents had its advantages. Take, for instance, the vulgar comedy records that she listened to. I had subscribed to Columbia Records, and I ordered things like Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, wildly inappropriate for my age. Cambry and her brother would also have full conversations in front of their parents without moving their lips. So at dinner, he'd be like, all right, I'm going to sneak out. You tell mom and dad I'm hanging out with Jimmy, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Cambry remembers her dad always doted on her. One time, after a long day at the beach, Cambry and her brother were riding home in the back of the pickup truck. Her flip-flop got sucked out through a rusted hole in the truck bed. Cambry broke down in tears. Seiko saw Cambry so upset he pulled over, ran across four lanes of traffic, cars swerving and honking at him. Of course, he couldn't hear them. And he runs back like he's carrying the Olympic torch, you know? He's like, yeah, woohoo! And people are hooting and hollering. And he rescued this maybe a dollar's worth of Flintstone flip-flop. And he gave it back to me. He's like, don't you cry, baby girl, don't cry. Yeah, he would have done anything. When Cambry was a teenager, the family moved from the woods to the big city, Fort Worth. That's when she learned her dad's drinking was a problem. I would ask my mom, when's he coming home? And she wouldn't give me the answer. And that made me so anxious, just balls of anxiety. 
Even though he was a talented builder, Seiko had a tough time holding on to a job. And when he was out of work, he'd get paranoid. See, Cambry's mom, Christy, could hear pretty well with hearing aids, but Seiko could not. So he often felt left out. He's like convinced that we're talking about him. Cambry really got into theater when she was in high school. There was one play she was in. It was so well received, the school's drama program made it to a statewide competition held at the University of Texas. So it was a huge deal. It was like every single parent came out on the buses and in caravans of cars. After all of the schools performed, everyone waited in the auditorium for the judges to tally the scores. That's when we just hear this guttural, like, and everybody's like, what is that noise? I immediately recognize it. Uh, (laughs) It's my dad on stage doing his best Elvis impression, was swinging his arm around and doing his gyrating hips. One of the adults in charge finally chases Seago off the stage. And I'm just like slunk down and my seat. I was mortified because my all my friends are like, wait, Cameron, isn't that your dad? I'm like, no, 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 I've never seen that man before in my life. What are you talking about? No. But of course it was. I was so mad at him. Despite that embarrassing moment after the play, Cambry has stayed with theater. In fact, she's even shared parts of her life on stage. Here she is last year talking about how noisy it was in her house. Deaf people really don't understand how loud they can be. (laughs) Everything from bodily functions to clanging of dishes, it all becomes just sort of white noise of life to a coda, a child of deaf adults like myself. I used to sleep with speakers in my bed with the volume turned up to 10 and would still sleep through the alarm. So I also never heard my parents fight. But one night, when Cambry was 17, she did hear them fighting. She got up, tiptoed down the hall. And she was laying on the floor, and my dad was straddling her with his arm cocked back, ready to punch. And my mom saw me in the doorway, so she turned her head a little bit, and just that fraction of a move, my dad's fist hit the floor instead of her face. Cambry had never seen her dad like this, unhinged. Around the apartment, there were about a dozen fist-sized holes in the walls. I ran to my bedroom and I called 911. And now my first instinct was to protect my dad because in the deaf community, you would hear stories all the time about how deaf people would be mistakenly shot dead by the police because they hadn't listened to the officer's commands. So I made sure that the 911 operator knew that my dad was deaf and please don't shoot him. The police arrived, but this was Texas in the 1980s. There weren't laws yet to protect Cambry's mom from her husband. So all the police could do was escort him out of the apartment and back into his car, even though he was clearly drunk. Cambry and her mom went back to bed, both in a state of shock. And that's when I hear a tremendous crash. Seiko had kicked down the door. Cambry came out of her room and he charged her. She tried to call 911 but her dad yanked the cord out of the wall. Then he corralled Cambria and her mom into the dining room. I would scream, somebody, call 911, somebody, call 911. Nothing. So he turns his attention to me and he wants to make sure that I know what a terrible human being my mother is, saying your mother is an S. L-U-T-SLUT! 
and he's searching my face for a sign that I'm on his side. Cambry kept a straight face. Seago snapped. That's when he grabbed Christy by the throat and slammed her up against the wall. Her feet are at least a foot off the ground, and her heels are digging and writhing around like she's trying to get some leverage on the wall, and her eyes are bugged out, and I get in between their faces, and I make my dad look at me. Look at me. It's Cambry, your baby girl. Look at me. Why are you doing this? Why? Her dad's eyes filled with tears, and he let Christy go. Cambry ran for the phone, and the police arrived soon after and arrested Seago. All of this happened during Cambry's senior year of high school. She stayed in school, did her best. Her dad wound up getting four years probation, not nearly enough as far as Cambry was concerned. Between the attack on her mom and the sentence, Cambry decided to leave. She married her boyfriend, took his last name. Right after graduation, they took off to Ohio. Back in Texas, Cambry's mom managed to keep herself safe. But for a long time, Cambry was angry angry she didn't go to college, angry no one took her dad's attack seriously. All that time that I'd felt like I'd been gaslit by everyone, everyone being like, oh, it wasn't so bad, he didn't mean to hurt you, you just forgive and forget. But Cambry couldn't forget. She had violent nightmares about her mom and dad. She coped by working, hard. At 26, she became assistant vice president of a bank. But she wasn't happy. Life was happening to me. I wasn't controlling anything at all. So Cambry ended her marriage and moved even farther away from Texas, to New York, to reinvent herself, all the while keeping in touch with her mom. Cambry would also get occasional late-night phone calls from her dad. One night, out of the blue, Cambry's brother called with staggering news. Seago stabbed a new girlfriend, and he almost killed her. Bam! Wakes me up. It wakes up all those old memories and all those old nightmares started coming back. The prosecutor asked Cambry and her mom to testify against Seago. Cambry refused. No way was she going to turn her life upside down again. So she told her mom to do it. Of course, I was nervous. I've never been in a a courtroom where I have to be on the stand. This is Cambry's mom, Christy. But when they brought him in, first thing I said, oh my gosh, he's aged. Alcohol has aged him. Of course, it upset me to see him. He kept his head down. He wouldn't look at me. As soon as the judge gave his decision, Christy called Cambry. And she said, 20 years. I answered the phone, and that that was the first thing out of her mouth. They gave him 20 years, and she was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. You know, just it all coming out. Anger, rage, guilt, shame, and every single emotion. This horrible soup just came spilling out of her. When I went home, I just... I went and took a shower, a long, hot shower, and just wanted to just clean myself off and just cried and cried and cried and wailed. Seiko dried out in prison, and he started writing Cambry. Sometimes he'd just ask for money. Other times he'd ask her to look up some fact he'd bet another inmate he knew. Every once in a while, a letter would rekindle something. Cambry would remember why she loved him so much. We always said he could charm the socks off a snake. (laughs) And then there were times when he denied the attack on her mom. At what point, and I don't know if you still hold on to some of that anger, but him not owning up to those attacks, I would be angry. There definitely were moments where I would be like, you, 
cannot possibly think that I believe this. And I'm like, Dad, I was in the room. I called 911. What kind of horseshit are you trying to sell here? Um, I think there's a part of him that wants to believe it because he was a blackout drunk because he doesn't remember the details. And how could he have done something so terrible and not even remember it? He makes up lies just to be able to live with himself. As she's wrestling with a tangled knot of emotions, Cambry kept busy. She opened a performance space in Queens and started interviewing her family to write a memoir. Researching his childhood and learning about his traumatic past was very helpful for me to gain empathy and to see him as a fully complicated person and not just this violent offender. She found out he had a really high IQ, but as a kid, he had trouble communicating with his own hearing family. He looked for attention in other ways and was punished as a result. One time when he was little, they threatened to leave him in an unfamiliar part of town. He had been whipped with cherry switches until lashes on his back that would result in open flesh wounds and welts and just terrible... Cambry's book was published in 2012, and she mailed a copy to her dad in prison. And I was hopeful that he would read it like it was meant to be. It was a letter to him. It was just a really long letter. I had wanted justice and had gotten it. Now, I just wanted my daddy, the one I chose to remember. The man who rescued my flip-flop because he thought it meant something to me. The father who danced better than John Travolta. The father who was my Daniel Boone, Frank Lloyd Wright, Ben Franklin. Siegel refused to read the book. He couldn't face the hurt he caused, but sometimes he mentioned something he could only have learned in the book. After a few years, Camry visited him in prison from time to time. They got closer. Eventually, Siegel owned up to the attacks. After two decades, he wrote a letter to Camry's mom, Christy, asking for forgiveness. And I feel like that he served his time because after that letter he wrote, I honestly felt like he was going to try to, you know, change when he got out. You know, if, if he had not been an alcoholic, if he had just been the good guy that I married, you know, stay straight, he would have been a wonderful husband and a wonderful father. In June of 2020, after serving 18 years of a 20-year sentence, Sego was paroled. I was like, he got paroled? Oh my God, he's coming home. Oh my God. During his last year in prison, Cambry and Sego planned a road trip. Cambry even bought a red Jeep just for the occasion. They had the whole thing mapped out. But the coronavirus halted their plans. The Texas prison system prevented thousands of inmates from completing mandatory pre-release programs. Everyone was put on lockdown. Inmates received just one meal a day in their cells. We're talking inedible food, molded bread, cold meat, you know, like still frozen. Seiko lost 25 pounds in a month. Cambry was livid. Just a few weeks after the parole announcement, Seiko collapsed and was taken to the hospital. The doctor diagnosed him with lung cancer. He died five days later. He was 73. I was upset and I cried because uh, there's this man that I was married to for 23 years. Mm. 
And you had two kids with them a whole life together, yeah. Yeah. Well, how are you feeling? I'm at peace. Uh, I feel like he and I said everything there was to say. I'm very disappointed that we didn't have time in the free world. So I'm sad that we didn't get that. Yes, I'm sad for that too. Yeah. A month after he died, Cambry held an online service. Yeah, uh, so this is weird, right? 2020 Zoom memorials. <laughs> um, we're going to be winging this. and During the memorial, she yeah, showed Sego's artwork, everybody. the scrapbooks he made of all the pictures and postcards she and her brother sent him. Friends shared memories, and Cambry read a letter she wrote to him in his final days. Dear Daddy, I want you to be relieved of any pain and suffering the world is better for you having been in it. You have given lessons to and inspired many, and you're accepted. She thanked and him for teaching her how to drive a stick shift, how to grow a garden, and less tangible things like empathy and forgiveness. You are my greatest teacher. You can't begin to know how much I love you. Always have, always will. Cambry. Cambry has decided, after all, to take her dad's ashes on that road trip through the South. They'll visit the school for the deaf where he met Cambry's mom. Then they'll drive to the Texas woods they called home. They'll head north to Oklahoma to see friends and family. And finally, they'll head east to New York, where Cambry will plant a pecan tree and shine a light on it. This is Two Lives from KJZZ Original Productions. I'm Laurel Morales. This piece was produced as part of the Transom Storytelling Mentorship. Special thanks to Yums the Word for letting us use audio from the show. To download all Two Lives episodes, go to our website, kjzz.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like it, please tell your friends and leave a review.